0: Welcome back to Race Through Education. We hope you enjoyed the week off. We wanted to give everyone the space to process the election and the results. And now that those results are in, we hope you're doing well and feeling hopeful. Now is where the hard work begins. As a reminder, this is the second part of our interview with Dr. Lamar Johnson. While there's plenty of disagreement over almost every aspect of Black English or Ebonics, there's no debate about the problem. Ebonics or black English is first tonight. Last month, a nationwide debate was ignited when the Oakland, California School Board recognized Ebonics as a language.
1: January 5th, 1997. Tonight.
2: Is English a second language to some blacks in America? I had this party
1: at the heezy, was off the hook.
2: <laughs> what the heck does that mean?
1: I had a party at my house and it was
0: fun. Should their teachers learn Black English, Ebonics, to better understand them?
1: From the minds of two doctoral students, Race to Education is the podcast that explores the impact of race on education in America.
0: As your hosts, we dive deep into the perspectives and experiences of Black and Latinx communities as they navigate the intricacies of learning in the United States. This is Race Through Education. I want to acknowledge the title of this week's episode, If Black Language Ain't a Language, Then Tell Me What Is. It's taken from a 1979 essay from the late James Baldwin. And you may have guessed it from the top of the show, but we're going to be talking about Black English, also known as Ebonics, also known as African-American Vernacular English, or AAVE for short.
1: At the top of the show, the Oakland Ebonics debate is front and center. The debate squarely focused on how Ebonics would destroy Black students' opportunities because they would no longer value the language of power. What is very clear is that the Oakland School Board was not advocating only to use Ebonics, but to be a bridge for students to leverage their Ebonics to learn standard English.
0: So this is the point of the show where I put on my glasses, right? So whenever I go into a definition, so the professor is in. But the term Ibonics was coined in 1973 by a group of Black scholars who sought to decolonize the African-American mind. In a 1998 article, Geneva Smitherman found that ebonics was resisting normative language that labeled African-American English as deficient and socially pathologized. But Black English is not deficient, nor is it subordinate to dominant American English. Black English should be embraced like any other language for its beauty and complexity to communicate. And it takes us back to our roots, and we really need to understand those. And I would actually argue that we can't fully capture the Black experience without the use of African American vernacular English.
1: Let's not forget about Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who believed that Black children needed to study Black English as an African tongue that had been broken down by racist assumptions that Black English is slang, it's a dialect, and it's a fragmentation of English. This ain't true. But more Dr. Woodson later in the show. Ain't nothing wrong with how I speak. Black language is everywhere.
0: In fact, Black English is very influential and needed for dominant American English to thrive. According to a 2018 study on the use of words on Twitter... Researchers found that African-American culture is a especially important source of lexical innovation, which basically means that we contribute to the culture. And going back to James Baldwin, I think of his books and other celebrated Black authors and poets. And if their words were written in anything other than African-American vernacular English, would it convey the same meaning? I argue that it wouldn't, because the language is very much tied to the experience of Black folks. There's something that I say to my Black friends all the time, and it's, whew, cha. Right. And, you know, it's it's describing like I'm tired. How many times do I say that to you, Madison? Right. I'm like, cha, you know, but autocorrect always thinks that I'm talking about the South American country of Chile. And I'm actually saying child. But it's funny because about two years ago on social media, there was a white girl that asked a black boy why we always say referring to African-Americans, why we always say woo Chile. And it just drove home the point of this desire to borrow from black language without having full understanding or, at times, uh Justin Timberlake, giving credit to our language.
1: After decades, we are still harming our students by banning Black English in classrooms. We only let Black English in for special assignments. We encourage code switching. We encourage students to bank more money on the language of opportunity while erasing their own language and identity.
0: Lamar Johnson is Associate Professor of Language and Literacy for Linguistic and Racial Diversity in the Department of English at Michigan State University. He is interested in the complex intersections of race, language, literacy, and education and how English language arts classrooms can become sites for racial justice. He developed Critical Race English Education, or CRE, which is a theoretical and pedagogical construct that tackles white supremacy, race, and anti-Black racism within English education, ELA classrooms, and beyond. Moreover, Cree centers the Black literacies educators can use to disrupt violence and curricula and pedagogical inequities against Black youth in schools.
1: Dr. Johnson, we enjoyed listening to your episode before the selection, which focused on why we should center Blackness in classrooms. We talked about bringing love into classrooms, the real love that Mary sings about. Today, we're talking about the importance of centering Black English in classrooms. Before we dive deep, can you give our listeners your definition of literacy? So,
2: for me, literacy. It is a meaning-making process. I do believe that. I do believe it reflects like ones, you know, racial, ethnic, linguistic, and geographical backgrounds and locations. It's more than, like you said, reading like what's in print. It's more than regurgitating facts and memorizing vocabulary words. Literacy is so dynamic, it's fluid. We have to think about how literacy to me, because of my black male body, it's also political and it's personal. And so we have to think about how literacy is not just something that you have. I think people like to say, like, oh, literacy is something that you have, but it's also something you do. It's an action. We can talk about how people since the beginning of time, our ancestors, when they were enslaved, how they used their language and literacy practices to speak back, to resist the enslavement of Black and African people. We can go through Reconstruction, Jim and Jane Crow, even up now, Civil Rights, but even to our current like Black Lives Matter movement and see how people are using their language and literacy practices to speak back up and against to white supremacy to colonization and to anti-black racism and violence so literacy is more than just what's you know in print like I said. it's also being critical in of uh, the world and reading the world and going beyond just what's in print so i like to think about carmen canard's uh definition of literacy when she says like actually it's political it's more than just something you have but it's something that you actually do and so that's how i like to look at literacy
0: You know, I think about all the assigned books that I read in high school, and none of them really spoke to the Black experience, with maybe the exception of Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. But in my AP English classes, I was reading things like The Canterbury Tales and Beowulf, which were written in Old English. But somehow we can't read Black literature? Like, what am I going to do with Old English? And it makes me think about Black teachers and how they can counter this emphasis on literature that speaks to only one group's experience— What is it that holds back Black English language arts teachers?
2: To your second point about Black teachers, honestly, yes. And we do have Black teachers who internalize white supremacy, internalize anti-Black racism. And they take those ideologies into the classroom because we've been miseducated. We've been fed that you need to know standardized American English or white mainstream English. We've been fed that you have to code switch in order to make it in these spaces. We've been fed and told that our language does not matter. We've been also spoon-fed, but also had white mainstream English shoved down our fucking throats over and over and over. And so I think when we have been told this since like kindergarten, sometimes pre-K up until like even college, that stuff impacts us. And so if we've been miseducated, we take those ideologies into our classroom and those things inform how we construct our curriculum, but also our pedagogical practices, which is why I think Carter G. Wilson's work, The Miseducation of the Negro, is so important for us to read as Black educators, as Black scholars, even if we're not in the field of education, because we all have been miseducated. So for me, and thinking about the work of Dr. April Baker-Bell, she also talks about like, what does it mean to even now in our current moment? To speak to the souls of black folks. That's also including speaking to the souls of black English language arts teachers.
0: You heard Dr. Johnson refer to Carter Woodson, as did Madison at the top of the show. He was a scholar who absolutely deserves mentioning. Carter Godwin Woodson was an American historian, author, journalist, and founder of the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. His work focused on the study of the African diaspora, which included African American history. Part of his legacy was the founding of the Journal of Negro History, which ran from 1916 to 2001. Woodson has been referred to as the father of Black history and is responsible for the launch of Negro History Week, the precursor of Black History Month. In 1933, Woodson wrote The Miseducation of the Negro as a commentary and criticism of how African-Americans were being acculturated and indoctrinated in American schools as a way to maintain inferiority and a white supremacist structure. Woodson's work is still cited, which speaks to a very relevant issue in the schooling of our young people. Woodson called on African-Americans to do for themselves as a way of countering their miseducation.
1: Dr. Johnson, toward the end of the summer, you dropped the We Demand Black Literacy campaign, which focused on what educators need to be doing in classrooms to empower, enrich, and love our Black students by centering Black literacies. Some of these demands focused on reframing our understanding of language and Black literacy practices to create safe spaces from linguistic violence. How did the public receive your We Demand campaign?
2: But when we post these Black language demands, oh my God, it, it ruffled a lot of feathers. We had a lot of people coming at our throats. For example, we had people emailing us saying, you are an like anti-intellectual. You need to be using standardized American English. Black language is not a language. That we're a racist and everything else. We had people comment on our Facebook page and statuses. We had people to tweet about us saying, like, don't let your kids go to Michigan State to work with these scholars. A lot of stuff that was very much like anti-Blackness calling us and where like, even those things happened to, like, some of us. And some of us didn't get hit. Some of us did get hit. So it was all around language, right? Because people couldn't see the intersections of language, race, identity, and education. In their mind, it was still coming from this white imagination, this white gaze. And so on one of my Facebook posts, this white guy commented about my post about black language and code switch and why we still should code switch, why we all should speak the same language. And he was definitely privileged in white mainstream English. But under his post, I actually had a black teacher come in and comment, and she said, well, I've been teaching for 18 plus years or 17 plus years, and I believe students have to code switch black students. It was very, it's real, right? We know that people embrace anti-black racism.
0: I wonder if there's a pressure that Black teachers face as they try to diversify their classrooms. They're coming into a field that is dominated by white educators. So I'm curious if there's a hesitation around disturbing what's already in place. Is this something that is common among Black educators?
2: We see teachers doing this oftentimes in schools. Black teachers, they do do this. We do see this. We know Black people who embrace these type of violent practices. But when she did that, I told her, I said, hey, you know, go read, you know, Carter G. Woodson's Miseducation of the Negro. You also check out Dr. April Baker Bell's book on linguistic justice. And I left it there. Because I think we have been miseducated. And I know we can't enter these spaces and think that this is the way to teach. Because this is what we've been told. But that's also is violent to our black and brown students. And it's violent to ourselves as teachers too. So not only are you engaging students in symbolic and spiritual murder and violence, but also you engaging yourself in that as well. You are not even being human and being whole when you're teaching them, that they have to code switch.
1: As an English educator, teaching grammar and vocabulary in isolation does not work. White educators believe that Black students needed to learn dominant American English to be successful in society. In comes contrastive analysis, which focuses on Black students using their own language as a bridge to learn standard English. The problem with this approach is that it exchanges one valuable currency for another, steeped in whiteness and white supremacy and the erasure of Black identity and language while promising admissions into white American culture. There's a lot more value on how well black students speak dominant American English with little regard to the language he or she uses in their community.
2: It's one of those things people like give you a compliment and he's like, dang, is that a, is this a compliment or is it not a compliment? Is it a backhand compliment? And I think when people embrace like the contrastive analysis, it's still saying like, OK, you can speak in your language. Right. You can use black language, but also at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, you have to know white mainstream English. And I think when you do contrastive analysis, it still privileges and upholds white mainstream English over black language. It's still saying it still says one is better than the other. And what I'm saying is that, no, they both can coexist because language is also black language is more than just those grammar features, too. Right. It's also the signifying. It's also the nonverbal communication as well. And I think people have to see that Black language is, once again, like Blackness. It's so dynamic. It's so fluid. It's not monolithic. And I think we have to understand that, for example, in Black language, we may say, she be going or she be tripping. If we say she be tripping, that means past, present, and future. She was tripping yesterday. She's probably tripping right now in the present moment. And she's probably going to be tripping tomorrow. If we want to say she is tripping, we'll just say, you know, she is tripping. But. In black language, we'll drop the linking verb is and put a "be" there. And that B connotes past, present, and future. When it comes to white mainstream English, we know that linking verb is, you know, important to them and that it can change, depend upon past participle, present participle, like all of those good things. So we even can think about, have that conversation when it comes to black language, white mainstream English. I think the thing is we have to begin to acknowledge and honor that black language is an actual language. That's the thing. And people can't embrace that it's an actual language.
1: Many educators, leaders, and other stakeholders often agree. Yes, our Black children should be themselves. Yes, they should be able to use Black language in the classroom. But, and you know there's always a but, how do we center the importance and value of Black English in school when state-sanctioned assessments do not align with what we know is best for our Black students?
2: But here's the thing. I think you have to believe and know and see the beauty once again in black language you have to believe that it's a language here's the thing a lot of people still argue to you that it's a dialect and i think when you see it something like that you already gonna see the secondary to the english language you're gonna say that this falls under the umbrella of the english language and it's its actual own language and so you talk about how does this look in the classroom well i'll be honest with you i don't think i can answer this question without backing it up some in order to do this work we have to embrace this radical imagination the black radical imagination where we think about how our past, present, and future are in this complicated conversation with one another. And that in the Black radical imagination, that racism, linguistic violence, sexism, toxic masculinity, those things cannot and should not exist within the Black radical imagination. So you approach education, you approach your curriculum, your pedagogy through the Black gaze. So I think that makes a difference. And that is not a cookie cutter way to do this work. Your soul has to change. And start with the soul work. You have to do that deep excavation of the self first to to really do this work. So you can't go into anybody's classroom trying to teach about black language or black literacies or from a really critical standpoint if you haven't done the soul work. And so for me, you ask how to do it. I think I would say I think it's easy. I think it's simple. I think, one, you have to be creative and know how to think outside the box and how to take the criticality. Infuse it what you're given with your curriculum, but also know how to deconstruct your curriculum, how to construct your curriculum, and how sometimes how to reconstruct your curriculum around all these things and bring it together.
0: I know you have experience as an English teacher. Could you tell us more about putting theory to practice?
2: So when I was teaching high school English, ninth grade English, when I got to my unit and they wanted me to teach subject verb agreement, which was in the standards, I said, okay, I can teach subject verb agreement, but also I can teach SVA. Also, from a Black language standpoint, because in Black language, it's regularized always when possible. In standard American English, white mainstream English, you know, that regularized agreement, it, it can change. So, for example, in Black language, you may say, like, he, she, or they swim in Black language. But in white mainstream English, they may say, like, he swims, she swims. They add the S to it. For us, we may just say, like, he swim, So we'll drop the S and regularize it when possible. So we have to have those conversations, even thinking about the verb to be. So even going back again about the SBA, we may say here's another good one. We may say they is. So we'll regularize the agreement. We may say they is, but we know that they means more than one person. Tickling, it never means just like that one person. It means more than one person. But in standard American English, we may say, like, they are. So having these conversations with your students, showing them and acknowledging like the beauty in blackness and black language. That's the thing. When I taught high school, of course, I had students to say like, oh, so it is an actual language. Could they know that they speak a different way? But do they think that it's an actual language? Their attitudes about that may be different. So I think we have to teach them that, no, it is a language. And we've been taught and trained to think that it's not. And so I'm not saying that white teachers, even black teachers going in classroom trying to teach Black language, like how we may teach Spanish or French. No, I think it's going to be a little different because of the context, because of historical antecedents, because of contemporary uh, context. But I think we have to get to see them like how this is how we acknowledge Black language and that Black language is an actual rule and govern and systematic language. Think about, for example, the hate you give. I get it. It's not about slavery, but it's about police brutality. I get the point you're trying to make, but that's the first book that pops to my mind. Because one of the books, I think, that she does a very beautiful job using black language in its current moment. From the very first chapter, she says, like, oh, Ken, your hair is slayed. How can you teach the hate you give, which a lot of teachers love to teach, right? But I wonder how many of them use the thing about, like, black language. From the very first page, she says, like, oh, her hair is slayed. What does that mean when she says her hair is slayed? Use slayed means, like, to kill, to eradicate. But what she's saying is totally different, right? That semantic inversion, which is part of black language, where the meaning change where she's actually she's saying start saying like oh kenya hair looks really good so even thinking about that how can you teach the hate you give by thinking about like and that's a semantic inversion that's another component of black language so it's more than just oh she said she be tripping she used to be incorrectly okay that's that's one feature of black language like the grammar but also let's think about the the semantics too let's think about the meaning and how give words meaning different meanings and functions we may say like i never forget when I was working in the summer camp my junior year and we had a party for the camp counselors and it was this white girl and we had to dress up. And she had on like a red dress and some like red shoes or something. And I was like, oh, I know that was her name. I was like, oh, you know, oh, those shoes are, you know, those shoes with that dress there is bad. And she was literally in that moment. I didn't notice at the time she, she left. And when she left, she came back with a different outfit on and she walked to the circle again. They're like, oh, why did you change? She's like, oh, because... He said that my shoes were bad. And it's like, uh, actually, that was me giving you a compliment, saying your shoes look really nice with the outfit, bad meaning good. So that just shows you how so many people are in these spaces trying to teach, but they don't even understand the language. So, but they want to sit here and say that it's not smart, it's anti-intellectual. But actually, it's a very sophisticated language. And I think those are them that shows like it's so sophisticated. Even when our ancestors, when they first came here, Thinking about how they didn't all speak the same language, but I had to hear what the oppressor, what white folks were speaking, also mixed with their own like tribal language, and came up with black language. It, that's how it evolved. So we, have, we can't talk about black language without talking about like the historical antecedents of it and the underpinnings of it. So it's a very sophisticated language. They would talk, sing songs, escape for their freedom, and these white folks couldn't even catch on. Even now in classroom spaces, when I was teaching. Students would talk. Of course, I'm black, so I would catch on. And I was very much part of pop culture and still speak as a black language speaker myself. I got that. But if, sometimes I was speaking in these classrooms against my other colleagues who are white and they wouldn't even catch on what they were talking about because it's such a sophisticated language. They don't understand it. But yet and still you'll see them trying to capitalize off of black language, such as like McDonald's with, you know, I'm loving it. But spelling love loving L-O-V-I-N apostrophe dropping that G. The phonetics, which is part of Black language, we'll drop our G at N word and add an N there. You know, that's Black language.
1: I remember having teachers in school who stayed try to correct everything, the way I wrote and how I spoke, even the way I behaved. With the micromanaging of my body and voice, I felt trapped in two worlds. It was W. Du Bois who expressed that African-Americans have this double consciousness that is continuously at war with one another. School told me that Black English was slang, ghetto talk, and standard English was always the language of opportunities and power. I couldn't imagine Black English as its own language because it was demonized throughout my education. Even when I went to college, I had a professor tell me, "You need to improve your writing. It's too city." And I can't evaluate city. Her words were loaded with race-based language. It was confirmed that even at college, a place where freedom is valued, could confine me because of who I am. Now that I'm an English teacher, I'm giving my students the right to speak and write Black English. I teach them what dominant American English is and how it can destroy their spirit if they allow it. The older I get, the more I realized that my language matters. I should not substitute Black English for the sake of fitting in.
0: You know, I had to check myself when we first started at NYU because I would come for you in your certain pronunciation of words. I mean, I never did it outside of a social context between us, but I realized how messed up that was. Like, who am I as a fellow Black person to get you to change how you speak when we're talking to each other? It was oppressive and downright hypocritical, especially when I myself would casually slip in bits of Black English. But glory, glory, I have seen the light.
2: Even when our ancestors, when they first came here, thinking about how they didn't all speak the same language, but I had to hear what the oppressor, what white folks were speaking, also mixed with their own like tribal language and came up with black language. That's how it evolved. So we we can't talk about black language, without talking about like the historical antecedents of it and the underpinnings of it. So it's a very sophisticated language. They would talk, sing songs, you know, escape for their freedom. And these white folks can even catch on. Even now in classroom spaces, when I was teaching, students would talk. Of course, I'm black, so I would catch on, and I was very much part of pop culture and still speak as a black language speaker myself. I got that. But sometimes I was speaking in these classrooms against my other colleagues who were white, and they wouldn't even catch on what they were talking about because it's such a sophisticated language. They don't understand it. But yet, and still, you'll see them trying to capitalize off of black language, such as like McDonald's with, you know, I'm loving it, but spelling love loving, L-O-V-I-N, apostrophe, dropping that G the phonetics, which is part of black language, we'll drop our, you know, G at end word and add an N there. You know, that's black language.
0: What does black literacy mean for black students in their education?
2: When I think about the classroom through a black gaze, I'm not thinking about whiteness. Because I think when we sometimes we try to go into classroom spaces to, I'm going to teach white people about this. I'm going to teach these white students. I'm going to break these white students. I'm going to break these white teachers. In my mind, one, that shit is very stressful. Two... I think inadvertently we still center whiteness, to be honest with you. I think in some kind of way, although we work to decenter, I think we still still it in a way. And so I think when I come from the black gaze, I'm thinking about my theory and pedagogy of critical race, English education, Cree. And for me, that challenges ELA teachers to reimagine ELA classrooms where black lives, minds, and brilliance matter. We see ELA from the black gaze. It centers blackness it allows us to look at like the intersections of race, literacy, violence, and education, but it also allows us to push back against these canonical texts too. And what we see, what we classify as a text in ELA classrooms or in English ed spaces. For me, Crete helps us to think about black futures, center black futures and the black literacies that black students bring to classroom spaces. And when we think about black literacy, it allows students to reimagine what we classify as black texts, culture, and knowledge and so i think we have to begin to bring in you know these black language literacy pedagogies and theories i could even think about dr baker bell's linguistic justice where we began to shed love and beauty on black language in classrooms but pushed back against white supremacy linguistic violence and anti-black linguistic racism i believe you cannot embrace these black theories and black pedagogies if you ain't right with yourself so, like Lauren Hill says, how you gonna win when you ain't right within? You have to do the soul work. And it may sound like, well, they're so theoretical. Listen, you got to do the soul work. Theory, research, and practice all blend together. Even when you're in the high school, classroom, middle school, elementary, wherever you are, it's not just practice. Theory, research, and practice intersect. And theory reflects who you are as people, somebody's personal experiences. And so I believe theories such as Cree. And linguistic justice, those are never scared pedagogies and frameworks. You cannot embrace those frameworks if you're scared. It's never scared. So I don't think you can embrace those types of teaching and theories and ideologies if you run and scared. And we know with the Black radical imagination, with Cree, it centers Blackness and is grounded in a
1: Black radical love, but also the Black radical imagination. It was a pleasure having you here, Dr. Johnson. When we sat down weeks ago, we had such a great conversation, we had to divide your episode into two parts. We thank you for taking the time to have this very important conversation with us.
0: And can you please let our listeners know where they can find you and if they want to learn more about your work?
2: Uh, you can find me on Instagram, IG, uh, LamarJ2406. On Twitter, which I probably need to revamp, it's still my same Twitter from undergrad, <laughs> but it's phenomenal underscore nine, nine in all caps. <laughs> But it's still the same. For some reason, I still haven't changed it. Um, but I probably need to change the name so people can find me easily on Twitter. But I really don't use Twitter like that. I'm I'm very active on Instagram, so that's where you can find me. As for projects, I'm currently thinking about blackness and what does it mean to be black in the future through media. And so I'm currently working on like a few a few media projects. I just created and producing a podcast called The After the Party. I'm also working on a few fiction tv shows pilots and shooting so i have some grant money to shoot a pilot episode so now i'm out in the west coast in la working on these projects and it still builds from the work that i'm doing you know as a scholar stuff we just talked about but it's also how do you make this work accessible to people outside of academia how do you make this work accessible to my mom my grandma my aunts my uncles my cousins that this work is not so esoteric and that's the thing when i write this work when i do this work this work is not only for NGLA teachers or you know just students work is for everybody we all can learn from this. And so now I'm just thinking about blackness through media and film, which is also, like I said earlier, it's a text, right? These things can be read. They can be analyzed. And so this is currently where I am, thinking about what it means to be a scholar. For me, I'm not a traditional scholar, although I'm, I'm tenured now. <laughs> I know. It feels so good. And although I'm tenured, my trajectories may not be the same as someone else who is tenured. I don't want to be a department chair right now. I don't want to be a dean. I don't want to be a president. I see myself as a leader of the new school. And as a scholar, for me, it means so much more than just being a professor. It means being a writer, being a creator, being a producer, just doing all these things that I like to do that makes me an impeccable and dynamic scholar. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show my home institution that, you know what, I don't have to be here. Every single day, because it's what you think I should do. This is a traditional way to follow academia. That's still grounded in whiteness, and it's still very narrow and linear. So what I'm doing, no, that's not my journey. I want to be a scholar and professor, but also I want to be a producer. I want to be a TV creator. I want to be a showrunner. And I'm going to do all these damn things and still be a professor,
0: because it can be done. Taking it back to the top of the show where we spoke about James Baldwin, he wrote something that resonated with me. And he said, quote, Black English is the creation of the Black diaspora, end quote. And I would be curious to learn about how this emerges for other groups of learners. Like, what does this look like for Latino students? So one thing we know about here in the U.S. is that the Latinx communities are diverse in their experiences and their origins, right? You have some Latinos that are Caribbean. Uh, we have some that are coming from Central America, from South America. So their experiences and their cultures are all different. And we know that culture has a huge impact on language. But like, how would this look for Dominican-American students in Washington Heights compared to like Chicano students in the southwest part of our country? So how does language fold into how they are learning? Would this be the same reaction like we saw with African-American vernacular English? I'm, I'm just really curious. And I think that could be another episode in itself. But one of the things that I do notice is that there is such limited data around how Latinos experience education in this country, which I think is a huge gap in academia.
1: We cannot have Black lives mattering in schools if we do not make Black language matter as well. Both body and language are part of identity. Often Black students are judged and categorized based on how they look and how they speak. Anti-Blackness structures begin to emerge when we demand that students speak dominant American English in schools. From the English-only policies to having students give up a sense of pride, dignity, and voice to assimilate into whiteness and white supremacy. This is criminal and should not happen. Black students are told they must cold twitch to be tolerable and employable. Co-twitching without context and understanding how the strategy is meant to survive rather than thrive must be presented to students. We should not be in a space where Black students feel, in order to be successful, they have to adapt to white standards. If we want to do this work of equity and inclusion, honestly, we cannot be hypocrites by disallowing students' full identity in the classroom. If Black language ain't a language, tell me, what is?
0: Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter at race through edu one and on Instagram at race through education. You can also visit us at www.racethrougheducation.com for podcast updates, highlights, resources, and more. And finally, let us know how you feel. Send us an email at education at gmail.com for a chance to have your questions or responses read on the show. Race Through Education is edited and produced by Luis Rodriguez.
1: Thank you for listening. We'll see you next
0: week.